Welcome to today's message from Transformation Church. Yes, well, good morning. And, uh, nice to see you. Thank you for coming. And uh, earlier, um, uh, nice to see Matt and Nico and you know, the baby. And earlier, uh, some of you may remember my daughter, Bethany, and her husband, um, whatever his name is. Uh, Bryce and um, and uh, was here. Uh, right there, right there is a black one. Uh, so they were here visiting, and we hadn't seen them in uh, a lot of months. I guess since the first of December, and uh, so it was nice, uh, nice, to, nice, to, nice to have them. And we'll be grateful when they leave. And um, so um, the, the 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 younger boy, his name is Andrew, and uh, my middle name is Andrew. So he uh, he's 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 a nice nice boy. And I think if you had to um, uh, probably you know put a group of people to which he would belong, it would be the Peace Corps. He just likes things mellow. Doesn't like a lot of disturbance. Doesn't like a lot of. He just wants things just mellow as long as there's food, copious amounts of food. He's fine. Now his sister, on the other hand, if there was a group to which she would be allied, it would be probably ISIS. And um, uh, she is, uh, she's been investigated by various uh, government agents for terroristic threats. And um, so when I get up to preach the last time, she started to create a commotion. And I didn't. Re- they, they told me later it's because she wanted to rush the stage. So I, I have a groupie, and uh, one I have one groupie. And um, if I'd have known, I would have said, "Let her, you know, let her come." But um, so uh, very, very good. Good, good to see you. And happy Memorial Day. And for those of you who have served or are serving, um, or have had family members to serve, thank you for. Thank you for that. And uh, if some of you know, my daughter Bethany was here this morning earlier. Um, she served in the military uh, for um, quite a few years and um, served in military intelligence, in other words that don't go together, and um, uh, spoke at one time fluent, Ara- fluent Arabic. And, uh, but now, and I didn't announce this in first service, but now she's applying to be in the FBI as a special agent and uh, has just begun that process, so we'll see uh, how that goes, and it's a, it's a long process. She has an injury um, from the military, and so that may uh, complicate her ability to join the FBI. Um, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to uh, talk to you today uh, about keeping you posted, keeping you posted, and that's kind of a double entendre of of um, of what we're going to talk about. But when you tell somebody you're going to keep them posted, and some of you are very nervous, saying, "Is he going to talk like this the whole time?" Um, you're already getting yourself positioned in the chair so you can fall over and make it look like you're not going to be asleep. Um, but if 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 I were to say I'm going to keep you posted, what we're saying is I'm going to, get, I'm going to keep you up to date. And um, so I want to kind of get us up to date about where we are. And I am not an academic. I do have a, a doctorate degree, as Troy mentioned, but I, I, I'm not an academic. I'm a practitioner. I, I don't get a big thrill out of, you know, just kind of having theories and philosophies. I, 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 I like stuff that's practical and applicable. And so I'm going to give you um, kind of uh, our um, four-post-it condition. And I liken it to a bed. I liken it to a bed. And so let's draw a bed here. And um, there's always a lot of jealousy when I begin to draw on here because people say, why can't I draw? And why didn't the Lord give me the ability to draw like Jowdry? And this says uh, Petey and uh, Ruthie. And, um, and uh, this, is, this is our bed. And so there's four posts on this bed. One post here, one post here. That's the headboard there that has, has our names. 
And then Ruth has the rules written down, you know, about all the things I can and can't do. And there's, then there's some on the side, and then there's a manual, and then it's on a CD-ROM computer, well, the rest of the rules. Um, so we have four-posted bed, four-posted bed. And I want to talk to you about the four-posted bed before we get to kind of talking about where we are. Um, this, is, uh, this is the 24th day of May. Next Sunday will be the 31st day of May, and it will be what we call in the church calendar Pentecost Sunday. And Pentecost Sunday takes place 50 days after the resurrection of Jesus, and Pentecost was one of the three major celebrations that Jewish males were compelled to attend, no matter where they lived in the world. If they could get to Jerusalem, they were supposed to go to Jerusalem, and wonderful festivals. And... Um, uh, uh, so they were to go there, and that's why when you read the story of the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, there were people there from all over the world, and we heard them speaking in our language, the languages of the nations from whence we came. And so there they are all speaking in tongues in a language of the, the, the speaker doesn't know the language they're speaking, but the people from the other countries, they heard the language from the countries from which they came. And... and uh, uh, and so that's why, is because there were people there from all over the world. And it was a, these were glorious and wonderful celebrations. And so uh, we want to talk a little bit about Pentecost today, but I, before we do that, I want to get to where we are. Where, where are we, in, even in America, and then go from, or even in Western civilization, and then go down to, and some of you say, this is incredibly, oh, I just can't believe it, I'm, I'm, you know, you're starting to write suicide notes, so you think it's going to be so boring. But the first one is we are post modern. Oh, let me talk to you about this word post for a second. Post is a prefix, which is interesting because post means after, but we use it as a prefix, and so if I were to say post-lunch, that would be after lunch, or, or, or post-career, that would be in your retirement, or post-marriage, that would be when your marriage is over, or, your, or your, one of the spouses has passed away. You know, this post always means afterwards, right? And so, but you put it before the word, and so the first word we are, are speaking is post modern and postmodern we could literally talk months about postmodernity okay so we, we have like a, just a few seconds but postmodernity is a period a philosophic system after the philosophic system of modernity well think about and and you think well we're, we're, we're more modern now than we were 100 years ago that's true but there was a time in which we thought this uh, like they used to sing in the 1970s i don't know what band it was this is the age of aquarius you know blah 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 blah, blah. and it was really really exciting and everything was going to be better, and we all, you know, said peace, groovy, love, and all that kind of stuff. I remember Dick Weber used to say that all the time. It was really amazing. And, um, and so um, uh, uh, that was kind of like everything was going to be wonderful. But then think about uh, the First World War. You think about the First World War, and, you, and, and that, was, that was absolutely horrendous. I mean, the war to end all wars. It was horrific. And, 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 and parallel or concomitant with the First World War was what? Was, was the Spanish flu that killed 50 million people globally. I mean, it was absolutely horrific. First World War ends in 1918, in November the 11th, 11th hour, the 11th day of the 11th month, and it ends, and, but on 20, almost 21 years later, on September 1st, 1939, is the beginning of the Second World War. And so people began to think about, you know, we can't even, con and by the way, it happened in the same uh, kind of geographic location for the most part, which is mostly in Europe. And, and, and people are going like, this is crazy. And they began to lose faith in what they called modernity. Modernity was going to be this wonderful time when, when wars were going to be no more, and it was just going to be, you know, just really, again, just a kind of an egal, uh, uh, a kind of a, a utopian kind of, kind of deal where everybody was going to be happy all the time. And they said, you know what? Modernity isn't working for us. Even with all of our inventions and all of our wonderful stuff, modernity isn't working. And they went into a philosophic system of postmodernity, and postmodernity began to question all the things that were absolutely solid. Everything that was solid, everything we said was, this is it, you know. And, and by the way, not everything about postmodernity is wrong, and not everything about modernity is wrong. There's some goods and bads to both sides, but be that as it may, we're in a philosophical system of postmodernity modernity, and, and, it, and again, the, there's, there's nothing that's really firm any longer. It's all very, it's all very malleable. It's all, it all can move back and forth. Hmm. The second post in the bed is post-Christian. 
Now listen to this brief description of post-Christian. Western civilization no longer sees Christianity as the default religion. In fact, I was a few years ago, uh, three or four years ago, I was in, uh, in, in Brussels, uh, not in Brussels, I was in uh, Antwerp, Belgium, where I have some friends, and, uh, and we're also in Bastogne, but, but in, 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 in Antwerp, we sat there at this cafe across from this church that was no longer a church, it was a, um, it actually was a, a museum, an art museum, and um, it was just simply that paintings were crazy, and just beautiful, and, you know, exceptionally, and, and, and you just were in awe. But as we sat in this cafe, we just saw one group of people moving and going by, and one group of disaffected kind of groups after another. It was just amazing that you, that you, you saw such a wide variety of people, and yet you saw nothing that was monolithic, nothing that was absolutely homogenous. It was all disparate. And so uh, uh, when we when we watched, and I talked to the missionary, and he said the, the the attempt to talk to people, they see religion as just something that's just like almost a curse, and don't even talk to me about. G-. And so they have eventually they did eventually start a church that's very viable there now. But you know, in a church in a city of that size, to have a church of fifty people is considered to, you're, you're considered to have like you know it'd be like saying you have a church here of five thousand. The work that goes into just getting fifty people to start to meet together. And, and so, so Western civilization doesn't see Christianity as the default religion any longer. As Christians, we do not have home field advantage. What that means is people aren't giving us advantages just because we're Christian. In fact, in some cases, they actually seem to be kind of prejudiced against us sometimes. Even in America, this, this country that was said to have been built on Christian principles. I heard a politician this week, and he was talking about it's time to get our mosque open. It's time to get our synagogues open. And then he said, finally, it's time to get our churches open. The idea that, that being Christian is, is the default religion in America is, is no longer the case, even though even numerically we still would, would hold the, the greatest proportion of, of, of Christians, the greatest proportion of the population being Christians. So that's kind of our general state in, in, in the country and in, in Western civilization. But then, let's go to the church. We are now post-denominational. Now, what does post-denominational mean? Post-denominational means, as Christians, there is no longer a rigid commitment to one's denominational moorings. You see, I, 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 I am a Baptist, and I was born a Baptist, I'm gonna, I was raised a Baptist, I'm, I live my life as a Baptist, I'm going to die a Baptist. How many have heard those kind of comments before, right? Or, I'm a Roman Catholic, I'm, you know, live my life, you know. Yeah, I remember being in Thailand many years ago. First time I was in Thailand was 1983, before many of you were born. That's so sick. And um, uh, I remember being there, and, and I remember the, the, them saying, you know, to be Thai is to be Buddhist. That's your identity is with your, 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 your nationality. And, and they said that was, made it very difficult to, to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ under those, under those circumstances. But your denominational moorings kept you in one kind of camp all of your life. And to switch was a major thing. Well, now we don't even seem to even care about denominations any longer. In other words, I can, I can go to an Assembly of God church this week, and next week I could be in a Baptist church, another week I could be in a, in a Presbyterian, not even realizing that the doctrines of those churches, while you know, fundamentally the same, there's some, certainly some strong nuances of differences. And, and so we're post-denominational. That is, that is we, we, we don't really find our adherence to one denomination any longer. And the final post is we are post-doctrinal, which is, comes out of being post-denominational. In other words, we don't really care uh, what you believe. We care rather about how I feel when I'm with you. We all listen to the same radio station, don't we? W-I-I-F-M, what's in it for me? In other words, it's, it's that other radio station we listen to that's very similar, owned by the same company, MMFGAM. Make me feel good and more. It's how you make me feel. You see, I go to that church because the, the, the preacher teach, treats me well and he only preaches for 20 minutes and, and uh, he says, come on, Troy, about an hour before we hear that and... and um, Actually, Troy actually goes on vacation sometimes during the pastor's sermons, comes back. He's been away for a couple of weeks. He comes back. He's all refreshed, and he's ready to end the service. And, and so, um, you know, we, we want to go to a church that just makes us feel good. We're, we're, and, and to a certain extent, we, we, that's, I guess that's all right. Having said that, however... You know, we, we've given up on doctrine. We've given up, okay, what does this church believe? What, are the, what, is, it, what is it that really matters? 
to them, fundamentally. And so we are post-doctrinal. It's interesting. It, when, when the Jehovah's Witnesses actually figure out that children's ministries is the way to go and youth ministries are the way to go and they start really doing a bang-up job on children's and youth ministries, people will end up leaving evangelical churches because they don't know what evangelicals actually believe even though they attend evangelical churches because they feel good at evangelical churches. And they'll go to, a, go to a, an, an aberrant uh, faith movement like the Jehovah's Witness and, and they will... They will participate there. Why? Because their kids are getting ministry, or their youth are getting ministry, or they're feeling good, or their coffee is more upscale than our coffee, or whatever the case may be. That's post-doctrinal. We don't really care what people believe anymore. It's how we feel. It's our visceral response to what's going on, as opposed to uh, finding ourselves moored in the truth of the Word of God. Can I tell you that we don't, we don't, we don't make up what we believe. I have some sympathy for the Roman Catholics because every time the Pope comes to visit a Western country or comes to visit America, they'll always interview people and, and say, well, what do you think the church should do about X? Or what do you think the church should do about um, uh, anything from gay marriage to, to uh, uh, you know, the priesthood and, and who should be in the priesthood or, or abortion or any one of a number of things? And people will say, well, I think that... And, and, and the church comes back and says, no, we believe this based on this Bible view or at least based on our traditions. And it's interesting to me that we almost seem like, hey, uh, we should make up our doctrines based on, on a poll. We should make up our doctrines based on what you believe. No, we make up Bible doctrines based on what God believes. Now, I want to I be clear this, this morning before I show you two other posts that I've, I've, I've kind of come up with. And I didn't read this in a book or anything. I just, this is just kind of my own stuff. So if, 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 if you don't like it now, you know why. It's because I made it up. Um, I'm not, I'm not talking about this this morning so in kind of like from a perspective of being um, uh, nostalgic. You know, you're saying, well, there's a 60-year-old geezer up there, and he's, you know, he's just kind of reminiscing about his, uh, his past, and he's, he's going to talk about some things in the past, and he's kind of condemning. Listen, I like our worship. I like contemporary services. I like going to places that are new and innovative, even in, 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 in Christian faith. I don't mind an old song, but I don't mind a new song either. I, I, I'm not here to just reminisce for the sake of reminiscing. I am here to say, however, that, that there are some things that we don't negotiate on. And so I found this other bed, and this is what I call uh, the, the Pastor Troy Ferguson. Oh, oh, my dear, I advanced all that. I didn't mean to do that. I did all, oh, my dear, I'm giving away stuff. See, I shouldn't be allowed to even hold stuff like that. Um, but this is what you call, this is the, the, see, my bed is kind of traditional. You know, it's just, it's, just, it's just, you know, me and Sister Ruth and, and, and the dog. And um, so she sleeps with two old dogs. Okay, so... But this here is the Pastor Troy Ferguson bed, okay? And it is really groovy. Okay, and it, it's got the here, and it's got the here, and here. And so those are four posts just like this. But I want to tell you about another bed in which we are lying, and I've, asked, I've added two posts to this bed. And this really talks about where we, as an Assemblies of God church, are. And I don't mean we in this particular church, but just we generally in the Assemblies of God. And these ought to concern us because there doesn't appear to be any upside. By the way, all these, all these uh, uh, others have some upside to them. Being in postmodernity actually opens some doors for us as believers. Being in, being in a uh, post-Christian society means that we have to stand for Jesus and we can't just ooze into the kingdom. Um, being post-denominational means that we recognize that we're not the only ones, that there is actually some others who are serving God too, and they're as equally as saved as we are and going to heaven as we are, and we rejoice with them. It doesn't make us so par parochial or so kind of uh, myopic or so inwardly focused that we're the only ones, us four and no more. And being post-doctrinal uh, gives us opportunity to, to, to say to a Baptist, well, have you considered this in the Scripture? And the Baptist might come to us and say, have you considered that in the Scripture? And we, you know what? We, we, can, we can be open to others. So they all, they're not all downsides. But then the other two posts that I want to talk to you about in these posts right here it, it, that are in this kind of bed in which we are lying, number um, is, 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 it comes from the Scripture which we find in Acts chapter 1. And as I was contemplating about this this week, the Spirit of God just spoke to me and said, well, read it. Read it again. Read it again. And so I read Acts chapter 1 again. And I'm, friends, I've read Acts chapter 1 at least two or three times before. 
Okay, I've probably read Acts chapter 1 a hundred times, or I don't know how many times, I just can't imagine. But, um, but here we are, Acts chapter, Acts chapter 1. Okay, here's, here's your two more posts. Number one is post-eschatological. What does that mean? Eschatology, what's that mean? That means the end times. You see, there was a time, and there is, a, there is biblical, lots of biblical precedent, where, where Paul will talk about their situation now, and he'll lay it against their situation which is to come. He'll talk about how they're living their life now in light of the glorious appearing of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You'll, you'll hear statements that he'll make, and then he'll go, until that day. What's the day? The day is... The, is, is the eschaton, that day in the future, the second coming of Christ. He'll talk about how that we need to live this life you know, in such a way. For instance, I'll give you an example uh, from 1 John. Everyone who has this hope, what does he do? He purifies himself. What's the hope? The hope is in the future. And what, what do we do in response to the hope of the future? We live a pure life. It's, it's interesting how there's this constant reference to how we are living, we use a term sometimes already and not yet, how we're living already and what we are yet to expect. But it's interesting, now all we talk about is, and again, I'm making a very broad generalization, all we seem to talk about is the here and now, how we live our life now, but it's never in light of what is yet to come. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 17. If there's anyone that's in Christ, the old is gone, the new has come. And I've talked about this before. Some of you remember that sermon. <laughs> what a joke. And, um, uh, but I, I preached about how we straddle the, the two kingdoms. I, already I'm still here, but not yet. I'm already in the new kingdom. And I'm straddling both. I'm living in anticipation already, not yet. If anyone's in Christ, the new has come. The old is gone. I'm living in the new kingdom, yet while I'm here on earth. You don't have eternal life when you die. You have eternal life now if you know Jesus. We're already there. And so... You have this post-eschatology, this post-talking about the end times. Again, some of you, again, at the risk of sounding like I'm being nostalgic or you're an old guy and you're just hoping for the good old days. When you, But I'm telling you, there were times in my life where every service there was a reference somewhere, somehow, to the second coming of Jesus Christ, that he was coming back again. Now, friends, you can live so far in the future that live, forget, to live about, forget to live here and now for Jesus. I realize that. But I tell you, friends, we must always live with a motivation that there's something beyond my experience now and Paul referenced it in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 he said if we if all we have to hope for is what goes on in this life we're to be pitied above all men because there's stuff that's coming in the future that gives us even a greater hope and so I don't want to be post eschatological but then there's another post and we'll get to the scripture here in a second which I call post Pentecostal we're in Pentecostal churches. Listen to what the description I use is, is simple. Pentecostals seem no longer to care about what made us distinct and what got us to where we are. You see, what made the Pentecostal revival what it was, and in, and in my seminary degree, it's, it's, it's in Pentecostalism, so I just took all kinds of Pentecostal history courses and all kinds of things. And, and, and what got us to, to be who we are, and the fact that there is now one billion, did I say billion? Yes, one billion people in the world today who would claim some kind of Pentecostal mooring, who would claim some sort of experience in God other than their salvation experience, that they have an experience of God that's beyond just being saved. They have this second experience, this second work of grace, however you want to typify it, where they've, been, they've had a supernatural encounter with God. One billion people only started, for the most part, although there's always been, uh, 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 there's always been people who have, who have been Holy Spirit baptized. And for those of you from the Roman Catholic background, you remember the Walbagensians and the Albigensians? They were Holy Spirit baptized. 
There's always been a group of people that have carried on the tradition. But in 1906, the beginning of the revival that took place in the Zoo Street in Los Angeles, other revivals that were taking place in, in the Welsh revival just a little bit before that, there was another revival in Sweden. There was one in, um, back in the 18, um, 1820s that was taken place by, by a man, led by a man named Irvin in London. But for the most part, it was the Zuzu Street revival that was the most prominent revival. And it ushered in this Pentecostal revival. And since that time, again, one billion people worldwide now claim to have some sort of connection to Pentecostalism. And yet we have Pentecostals who are saying, hey, I don't want just to I don't want just to be Pentecostal. I heard of a Pentecostal preacher yesterday who said yesterday, I heard of a Pentecostal preacher some time ago who said, he said, uh, you know what? Uh, uh, we, we are not really a Pentecostal church. We're kind of like a Wesleyan church. Now, friends, I love the Wesleyans. I've preached at Wesleyan camps. I, I, I have no trouble with, that, with, with Wesleyans. I, I have some good friends that are Wesleyans. I'm not taking away from the Wesleyans. In fact, we're pretty close denominationally and, and experientially to the Wesleyans. But having said that, I'm not ashamed to say I'm a Pentecostal. I'm not ashamed to say that I believe in, a, in, 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 in an encounter with God that results in the supernatural operating in my life. You know why? You know why Pentecostals sometimes want to disavow that which made us who we are? is because we don't want to actually have to deal with the dirty work that sometimes comes with Pentecostalism because sometimes there are excesses and sometimes people shout. I, I, I've been, when I was pastoring and, and sometimes people would kind of, and I, I, I'd say, Lord, you know, strike them dead. I, I sound, you know, a, a spiritual taser or something. Get them to stop. It's embarrassing. Most of us would be very, very unhappy to have been at Azusa Street where the revival was for three years. I mean, some wacky stuff happened at Azusa Street. And they were roundly condemned in, in the media and, 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 and in government. Most of us would have been very unhappy, by the way, to have been at the day of Pentecost, and we'll reference that in a second. Most of us would not have been very happy to have been there either, but that took place in the Bible. Most of us would have been very unhappy to have been at the revival that commenced on Father's Day in 1995 in Brownsville, Florida. Why? Because there was some crazy stuff that happened there, and yet over a million people made a response to the gospel of Jesus Christ in that community in that five-year period. You see, friends, I'm just telling you that sometimes we would feel a little uncomfortable with some of the quote-unquote, excesses of, of, of Pentecostalism, and yet I'm still not afraid to say, I, ex I, I am a Pentecostal, and I expect God to move in my life in power and with a supernatural outpouring, and sometimes I can't explain everything, and sometimes I clearly say, that's in the flesh, whatever the case may be, but I'll take, listen, I've seen people get in the flesh with their arms folded in worship and say, I ain't singing it. Why not? Because it's not one of the old songs. You're in the flesh as much as anybody that's bouncing off the walls. You're getting the benefit of a few things the first service never got. So let's look at this part of the portion that we're going to read from Acts chapter 1. And you know that I, when we, when we read and when I preach this, I, I, get you to, I get you to read with me. So we have to lift up our voices. So how do we address the last two posts? Well, this post deals with... Uh, Pentecostalism. Are you ready? Lift up your voice. Read it with me. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which we have, you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you'll be baptized with Holy Spirit. Then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Now, this is interesting. Let's stop there for a second. They were very concerned with power at that point. Hey, we've been through some tough times with you, Jesus. Hey, we were accused of a lot of things. We were called the sons of motherless goats. I mean, we were, there was all kinds of things that we were accused of. And now uh, we want to know, hey, are we going to start to benefit from you now being arisen from the dead and, and all of this? And uh, hey, you know, are we going to get some power? And what does Jesus say back to them? Are you ready? He says, he said to them, it is not for you, are you listening, are you reading it with me? He said it, to them, it is not for you to know the times or the dates the Father has set by his own authority. But, that's a conjunction, right? It's a conjunction that joins the, 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 the sentence before it with the sentence that's about to follow it, but it's, a, but it's a conjunction that shows a contrast. 
And the word but means this is going to contrast with what I just said. And so what did he just say? It's not for you to know the times or the dates the Father has set by his own authority. But in contrast to what I just said, you will receive power. The thing that you're most concerned about, power. I'm telling you, mind your own business. God will set it all in order. You just, you just kind of go along with the flow, and God will take care of it, but you still will receive power. When Holy Spirit comes on you, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, all of Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. The thing they were concerned about was political power. And he says, listen, it's not for you to know the times or seasons, but you'll still receive power. And the kind of power you will receive will actually make the difference in your life so much so that you won't just have an influence here in Jerusalem or all of Judea, but you'll go to Samaria, the place you'd, most like, most, you'd least likely to go. Why? Because you're prejudiced against Samaria, Samaritans. And then you'll go to the ends of the earth. You'll go everywhere all over the world. So you're going to have some power. You're going to be given power to do something you never ever thought possible. And so this is, listen to me, friends. Are we in any less need of this power today? Or, or, or somehow, were they in need of it and we no longer need it? Hey, friends, I need this power in my life today. Yes, Peter, we agree. So, so are we in need of this power today? Are we in need of the touch of heaven today? Are we in need of the ability to touch other people's lives for Jesus today? I invited some folks to our, an event at the Nehemiah Project tomorrow, and uh, by the way, you're all invited to come for lunch between 11.30 and, and 1.30. People will probably start coming up, lining up um, early, earlier than that, and we have 800 meals to serve. It's a kind of a, um, uh, what we're calling a barbecue. It's hamburger and hot dog and, and uh, a bunch of sides and groceries and all that, but you're invited to come, but I invited some guy to come, and he started yelling, I'm not religious, and I hate Jesus. And I, I was kind of embarrassed for him, in a way, but because he was so over the top. I mean, all I did was invite you to lunch. And, um, but, but the deal is, do I need the Holy Spirit's power any less today than they did then? No, I need his power now. And so I don't want to be post-Pentecostal. I, I'm Pentecostal not because it's my denomination or it's, it's the name over my door of my church and we're called Assembly of God, so, but we are a Pentecostal denomination. I, I, I'm Pentecostal because I need, to be, I need the power of the Holy Spirit in my life. I need him to come in greater and greater ways. But this part of the portion speaks to eschatologicalism, post-eschatologicalism, and you say, I never heard that word before. I just made it up, that's why. Eschatology, eschatologicalism, end times, the thinking about the end times. Hey, I need that, the eschaton, that's the time in the future. Hey, I need, I need his, his power in, 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 to, to deal with my life now, but I also need to live in anticipation of something that's to come. But what you'll notice here, have you ever noticed that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, uh, they'll tell the same stories but in different, different order? Have you ever noticed that? Have you ever wondered why? Because each one of the authors had a different agenda. And it was very common in, 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 um, at the time for authors to write stories, a story about the same, but they wanted to emphasize something different, so they put the story in a different place. They weren't, trying to be, they weren't written to be in chronological order. They were written to be in an order that bolstered their point of view. Luke, of course, wrote the Gospel of Luke, and he did that, but he also wrote the book of Acts, and we find out that in the book of Acts, Luke puts two interesting things together. He puts the story of Jesus telling them to wait in Jerusalem for the power that was going to come on high, and in fact, they're going to get this power, but listen to the very next story he tells. Ready? Lift up your voice and read it with me. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid them from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus, not a different one, this same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back the same way as you've seen him go into heaven. It's interesting that, that Luke connects two stories, the story of their need for Holy Spirit baptism to the second story, which is what? That Jesus is, has left, but we're not going to live just with a kind of a backward focus. We are going to live with a forward focus that he not only has left, but he's coming again. 
You see how the stories are connected? Luke wants us to connect those stories. I'm convinced of it. I'm convinced Holy Spirit knew what he was doing the other day when he said to me, just read it one more time. I've never noticed this before, that Pentecostalism and the second coming of Christ are connected. And what's the connection? The connection is this. Jesus expects his church to be a church that is Holy Spirit empowered until he returns. This is our normal. Theologians use a term called normative. What is normative? In other words, you know, Maybe that experience was just a unique experience for that one believer at that one time. But there are some things that are normative for all believers. And of course, we believe that Holy Spirit baptism is normative for all believers. We believe to anticipate the second coming of Christ is normative for believers. We believe that God expects us. So this is our normal. We are Holy Spirit in power, living and working in expectancy of his second coming. They were and we are not to look backward, but we are to be empowered until he returns. There's an absolute connection between these two points, these, this post-eschatologicalism post and this post-Pentecostalism. They're connected in this portion of Scripture. We are to be Holy Spirit baptized until he returns. This isn't some dispensable doctrine we can throw out. You know what? Hey, I just decided, you know what? We got a lot of doctrines. We just got a few too many. Let's get rid of a couple. Well, if you want to get rid of some things you believe, make sure it's not these two things. Because we need Holy Spirit power. In the 20th century, the Pentecostal movement started anew and has led to the greatest harvest of souls the world has ever known. This outpouring has broken down barriers and penetrated areas that were resistant to the gospel. This is not unlike what was said about Paul in Acts chapter 19. He says they went there for two years so that all Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia, not a city, but the province of Asia, heard the word of of the Lord. It didn't say some of the Greeks, most of the Greeks. It said all the Greeks heard this message. Later on, he was being accused and brought up on charges by the people who were running the, the, the silversmiths who were, who were um, you know, making idols and selling them, and they were starting to lose business because of the influence of the gospel. And he says, and you see and hear how this fellow Paul has convinced and led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus, and particularly and practically the whole province of Asia. The whole province of Asia has been affected by Paul. Listen to me, friends. This Holy Spirit baptism really matters because it empowers us to do which we, that which we could not do without him. Now, I know some would want to make the silly argument and say, oh, well, I know a Baptist guy, and he's leading all kinds of people to Jesus. Hey, I rejoice in that, and I don't take away one thing from that. But I say to you, if that Baptist guy is doing that, then God bless him. But I tell you, how much more could he do if Holy Spirit came upon him with great power? How much more effective could he be? How much more glorious could his response be? And not only that, he can, maybe he can operate without Holy Spirit power, but I can't. I need him. I need him. Listen to what Roebuck says, and he's describing. He says, some, some, that is the people who came out of Azusa Street, spoke of the spiritual encounters with hushed, awe-filled tones as they were once again caught up in the memory of these precious moments as they reflected on what God did at, at, uh, at Azusa Street. Others shouted with all the urgency they could summon as they extorted a new generation to seek God like they had done. Always they tempted and teased and tantalized newer converts in a kind of romanticized wonder. God can do it again. They promised. Expect it to happen to you. All you have to do is tarry and mean business, they instructed. Can I tell you, God can do it again. Think of the things that you know that God has done. Think of the most outlandish, the most grandiose, the most glorious, the most wonderful, the most awesome, the things that that, that are beyond being explicable. Think of the things you say, this had to be God, for only God could do this. Think of those things, and then say one more time, God, you can do it again. You can do it again. One more time. And how long will he do it? You know, there will be some things we will not do in heaven. You won't have a communion service in heaven. The Bible says you're to observe this communion service until when? Until he comes. You know that you will not lead anybody to Jesus while you're in heaven. There will be no healing services in heaven. Everybody will already be healed. 
But there are some things that we can do now that will bring people to Jesus. I had an experience, if I told you the name of the person in this community, I had an experience, and uh, this person has taught me a lot of new words, swear words that I never heard before. And uh, it reminded me, every time I talked to him, it reminds me of one of my wife's family reunions. Okay, no, I'm no, just kidding. And, um, and, 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 and so I was talking to him one day on the phone, and he is a, a very high-profile person in this community. Again, many of you know him. And, and uh, he was just, you know, and he was talking to me, and he said, man, I got this neck thing going on, and I, I'm, I'm going to the chiropractor, and going, I'm going to the, the, this, you know, the surgeon, and all this, and I, and I was just talking to him on the phone, and of course, he was, he was uh, uh, peppering the description with uh, various and sundry expletives, and, um, and, 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 and I said, well, let me, let me just pray with you right now. Let me just pray with you on the phone. I prayed with him on the phone. I asked Jesus to heal him and touch him, and so we get off the phone. I kind of forgot about it. And a couple weeks later, we were talking on the phone again and driving along. And again, he was chatting away. And finally, he says, and, I, he said, and by the way, he said, I can't believe it. He said, remember two weeks ago, you prayed for me? And, and, my, and I, I, my neck, I haven't gone back. I, God's touched me. And I said, well, let's just give glory to Jesus. And then we took time and prayed again. How many know Jesus is concerned about the people who use cuss words? And he'll even heal them for the praise of his glory. So the preaching and the living out of the gospel comes with power, not with mere words or with human persuasion. And how long do we do this when we're first excited about Jesus? No, we do this for all of our lives. I've been serving the Lord, depending on how you look at it, almost continuously since I was about 10 years old, so about 500 years it feels like, all right? So a long time. Am I supposed to retire at some point, give up at some point? No, I'm supposed to activate this continuously. Because why? He's coming again. Well, let me draw you one other picture, and you're going to be blessed by this one as well. I told you about this before. but I'm going to tell you about it one more time. This is the three-legged stool. I wrote some documents about the 12 characteristics of Pentecostalism. They're holy. They, 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 um, they're, they're, they, they have emphasis on being entrepreneurial. They're egalitarian. They're uh, just, just 12 characteristics. But I mentioned three main characteristics. Number one is global evangelization. That's the first leg. Number two is baptism of the Holy Spirit. Number three is the second coming of Christ. There you are, right there. Without, one, without any of these, what happens to the stool? It falls over. Global evangelization. When early Pentecostals first came with, with, with the experience of God, what happened? They got excited about telling others about Jesus. If I were to hold up for you the document, which was the first, um, it's called Apostolic Faith Paper, and the first one that came out of Azusa Street, and it came out in September of 1906, it just filled with getting this message out to the world, getting the message of Jesus out to the world, global evangelization. Well, how did they do that? They did it with power. What was the power they had? It was the Holy Spirit baptism. Why was it so urgent? Because Jesus was coming again. It's interesting that we, here we are, world evangelism, evangelism, compelled to preach the message. Holy Spirit baptism, empowered to preach the message. And Jesus coming, second coming, driven by the urgency of the message. That was the three most common characteristics of early Pentecostals, and that should still typify us. And this isn't an exercise, again, in nostalgia, where we look back and say, oh, wouldn't it be good, and that was the good old days, and too bad, and if only, and I wish we, and all that. No, no, no. This should be continuously characteristic of our lives. We cons- we're concerned about the world. We're concerned about our children and our children's children. We're concerned, be- and so much so that we say, baptize me one more time so I can lay my hands on people and see them recover so I can pray effectively. And because why? Because Jesus, you are coming again. Missing any one of these three legs will make it ineffectual. 
This is, this is for everyone, for all time. Listen to what Peter says. He says in Acts chapter 2 when he's preaching after, after the Holy Spirit pours out, he says, these are not drunk as you suppose. Remember I told you you'd feel uncomfortable at the, Baptist, at, at the first day of Pentecost? Why? Because people were acting drunk. They lost all sense of kind of a, of a personal dignity. They're not drunk like you're thinking they are. It's only 9 o'clock in the morning. It's too early to be drinking. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people, your sons and and your daughters. Not just your sons and your daughters. And by the way, these are young people. Young people weren't venerated in that day. It was older people that got all the attention. Hey, your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, even on the people that are supposed to be seen and not heard, the people that are supposed to walk in and serve you and leave never taking any attention to themselves, even on the servants, both men and women, both male and female servants, I will pour out my spirit. This wonderful egalitarian spirit who loves everyone, who's concerned with everyone. He is ubiquitous. He is everywhere present, nowhere absent. His eminence is too, is, is, is too great for us to fathom. He is at this moment in China, and he's in Africa, and he's, and he's in every place in between. He is everywhere operating, making Jesus real. This wonderful egalitarian spirit comes to empower us for the impossible. For how long? Until Jesus comes. Now we get ready to stop. Four years ago, we were having a family issue. And we did not know how to resolve it. I would be at the front of the church that I was pastoring at the time, and it would be a Sunday morning service, and I would receive these texts while I was in the service. And they were heartbreaking. They were just crushing it was hard to keep focus in the service and have these texts come through and I would be sitting there t- texting back. And I didn't know what they'll do other than to call my family to prayer and fasting. Called the whole family to prayer and fasting. And Bryce, who was here at the time, worked for me. He, he, that was at the time he was speaking to me. And um, he, he, he worked for me at the time, and Bethany's husband, and and he would come into my office, and we would just pray, pray. And I'd start out, I'd have some kind of prayer, but I wouldn't even know how to pray. I wouldn't know what to say. I, I had no solution. I couldn't tell God. You know how sometimes you pray, this is what God ought to do, right? You just tell God, this is what you ought to do, and in case you're wondering, God, I'll give you my advice, and you know, you'd be smart to follow me kind of thing. And, and, and so, but I, I didn't have any of that. I, I didn't have anything. I, didn't, I got nothing. So I put my hands up in the office and I'd pray in a language I've never studied or learned. I did not know what I was praying, but it was a language that God gave me to pray in. And this wouldn't just go on for 10 seconds or 15 or 30 or a minute. This would go on just for sometimes 10 minutes, 15 minutes. I just would pray, not in any language I, I, never, I ever knew. And it, it was bypassing my intellect, but my spirit, the spirit of God began to flow through my spirit, and it, would, and it would touch the spirit of God again and would pray in accordance with the will of the Father. And friends, I can tell you, I watched God move and change literally life-shattering situations in my family that were so overwhelming. I mean, there was no recovery from these. It, and, and I watched on one Saturday afternoon, it was several weeks later, I mean, you're talking probably six, eight weeks later, I watched as, as one, on one Saturday afternoon between 3.30 and 6.30 in the afternoon, God came. God came into the situation that was hundreds of miles away from our family at that time where Ruth and I were living. It was hundreds of miles away, but God came. He invaded that situation. There was repentance. There was deep contrition. There was a sense of, of, of the divine where God, those things that were askew and out of order and chaotic where God came with such power that, that, that we look back 
and we say, how could this be? And I actually say, it can't be, it can't be. I mean, come on, you can't, this can't change that quickly. It's just not impossible. There's got to be counseling, there's got to be this, there's got to be that. And there was that later on. But I thought, no way, there's no way this could be happening right now. But in that three-hour period, in response to the fervent prayer, the supernatural fervent prayer, the praying in the Holy Spirit, the Pentecostal praying, God came and he changed that situation. And even now, four years later, we're still getting a harvest from what God did then. He's still doing it until Jesus comes. I remember Brent Bond. Brent Bond was a kid that was on my team's and, and he was shy, and he was kind of, you know, he was a nice kid. He was sharp, you know, he always, but he was just kind of shy and, 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 and not good around girls like I was. Okay, okay, never mind. Anyway, um, and uh, there's only one girl I'm trying to be good around, and I'm, 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 not, yeah, I'm, not, I'm not sure I'm making it, but anyway. Um, and so, so, so he was like that, and the rule on the team back then was this. Hey, if, if you, everyone had to preach. Everyone had to give a testimony. Everyone that, was in, that, that did something, we, we never published beforehand what, what the outline of any service was. You had to be ready for every service. And so, man, that made everybody pray more. Because before every service, you never knew if you were going to get called on. And so the first time you knew you had to do something in a service was when you got called on. When I said, now Johnny's coming. Johnny, that was the first time Johnny knew about it, and he would have to be ready. And by the way, you couldn't get up and say, well, duh, I didn't know that was going to happen, and I'm not really prepared. No, you had to be prepared. And so I remember one night, shy Brent Bond, he's shy, little small guy, and, uh, and, and, and just nicest kid in the world, came from a wonderful family, but just really, really shy. And I remember I said, now Brent Bond's coming to preach. Brent Bond steps up and he takes out this Bible out of his back pocket and he opens it up to a scripture. He reads that scripture and then he starts to preach and he's calling people to repentance and he's to calling people to, to give their life fully to Jesus and he's calling people to be saved and healed and delivered. He's, I mean, and we're all going, what is, <laughs> this is like amazing. And, 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 and then he comes to the end and he's calling people to come to Jesus and this is totally uncharacteristic. And so afterward, we always have these after, after the service meetings and so we say, and so we went through everything that went on, and we came to his part, and we said, Brent, what happened, man? And they're all like, you know, needling, what's going on, you preacher, and all this? And they're saying all this to Brent, and his face kept getting redder and redder. He was totally embarrassed. He said, well, to be honest with you, he said, I, I, I was so nervous. He said, I'm nervous before every service. I know you could call on me. And I didn't know what I was going to do. And he said, I'm crying out to God, you've got to help me. I know tonight he's probably going to call on me. He hasn't called on me yet. This is probably, you know, it's getting slimmer and slimmer. And I'm, you know, and I don't know. And what am I going to do, Lord? Lord, would you please come and give me power? <laughs> Boom. Holy Spirit hits him. And he begins to pray in a language he's never studied or learned. The power of God hits young Brent Bond, 16 years old, and he gets touched and he gets filled with the Holy Spirit. He tells no one. And that night, in fact, he did get called upon. That night, in fact, he did preach. And that night, the Holy Spirit moved through him and touched him. And why is that? Because he opened himself up to Holy Spirit and said, Lord, would you do it one more time? And then Samuel Lamb Met him many years ago in the 1990s in Vietnam. He was the head of the Assemblies of God in Vietnam, a communist country. Been arrested at that time up to 12 times. His own kids, you know, the, the, the whole family's been arrested as a family lots of times. One time he met his son after they had been released in the, in the, in the lobby of the, of the police station. And, and the son came running over, and the son's now well into a, an adult. And I'm sorry, Samuel, Samuel Lamb's an older man now, but... He ran over and ran into his dad's arm, and he said, Daddy, Daddy, guess what? I got to drive in a truck. It was a police truck, but nevertheless, he got to drive in a truck. But Samuel Lamb talks about the day they got married, and he and his wife were always red hot for Jesus, and they just handed out tracts, and they were handed out tracts, and the South was not as communist as the North. He was in Saigon or Ho Chi Minh City, it's called now, and he said, we handed out tracts all the time. He said, so we went on our honeymoon, and you know where a lot of people are wanting to go now, to Hanoi, and uh, so they went by bus to Hanoi, for their honeymoon, and uh, they are all on the bus, and they hand out tracks to everybody in the bus, and then they get out of the bus, and they handed out some tracks, on their, and their, this, is, this is before they spent their first night together, this is the day they got married, and, and they handed out tracks to people, and uh, I know a lot of you did the same, and, um, 
And, and, and so, so immediately they got the attention of the authorities and they got arrested on their wedding day. And they got taken separately, obviously, to separate cells. And he talked about being away from his wife for weeks on end and her being in one cell and them hearing screams and yells and all kinds of things. And, 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 and he said he became so concerned that his wife was concerned about him and he didn't want her to worry and he would pray about that. He said one day he, he, was, he was lifting himself up to the bars and the windows and he was looking out and he could see the courtyard and he could see that they were leading his wife across the courtyard. And he said, oh, I, she's probably so upset that she thinks I'm going to be tortured. And they were usually easier on the women than the men. So he, and and he, said, he said, suddenly our eyes caught one another. And she could see me and I could see her. And he said, the Spirit of God just descended on me. And he said, later on, she testified the Spirit of God descended on her and gave them both immediate comfort that both were all right. He said, I, I began to just to call on God and just began to seek him and more and more. And he said, I knew my day was coming when what? When what would happen? He said, when they would come and try to extract some sort of confession out of me that I was a spy or I was this or I was that or we were, you know, some sort of subversives or whatever. And, and he said, I knew that day was coming. He said, and it would come and it would be painful and it would be difficult. I would be, you know, threatened with torture and would be tortured if I didn't give up, you know, certain things they wanted to hear. And he says, uh, he said, I remember the day I was standing at the... At the away from, with my back to the door and, my, and my, my face to the wall and I was praying and I was praying in the Holy Spirit, praying in a language I've never studied to learn. I was just praying and praying. He said, and I could hear doors opening and closing. They were getting closer and closer to me. He said, I knew today was the day they were going to torture me in order to extract some sort of confession out of me. He said, I just knew it. Sure enough, the key gets turned into his door and he hears, you know, the door opens, and he said, after a minute or so, he said, I just kept praying. After a minute or so, he said, the, the table kind of moved or whatever, and he got kind of jarred out of praying, and he turned around, and he kind of said, I was insulted by the person they sent to interview me. He said, he was an older man. He said, I, I don't know, they thought I was so weak that I could, you know, I could be, you know, tortured by an older man or whatever. He said, I kind of insulted, and uh, he said, the older man closed the door behind him and said, He's, he said, what, what are you? What, what, what is it with you? What, what's going on? What, I, I, I heard you. I, are you some sort of a priest? What you have to remember is, of course, who owned, who owned Vietnam before that time? The French. The French, of course, sent priests. What did the priests preach and pray in? They prayed and preached in Latin. And the old man said, you must be a priest. That's, what they, that's the language they prayed in. That's what they prayed in. He said, I can't do anything to a priest. I can't. And so Samuel Lamb says, well, what are you going to do? And the, and the guy says, well, can we fake it? And he says, okay. And he says, chairs were flying, the table was flying, I was screaming, I'm not. And he was screaming, asking me questions. I was hollering back. And he says, he, and then we'd and I'd be, ow, and, you know, screaming and yelling and crashing and banging. And he said, this went on for a couple hours. And, and, and I was denying, and he was accusing me, and I was denying, and all that kind of stuff. He said, and finally, he says, the guy says, whispers to me, you think we've had enough? And he says, yeah, I think so. Okay, talk to you later. Close the door and leaves. How many know you need Holy Spirit? I need Holy Spirit to help me with my family situations. I need Holy, Brent, Brent Bond needed Holy Spirit to preach. Samuel Lamb needed Holy Spirit so he wouldn't be tortured. You need Holy Spirit in your business. You need Holy Spirit. And you know why? You know how long we need him? Troy's coming. You know how long we need him? Until Jesus comes. I'll never get to a point where I don't need Holy Spirit. Oh, come. Come, Holy Spirit. Come. Come, Holy Spirit. I choose not to be post-Pentecostal. I need him. I choose not to be post-eschatological. He's coming again. Now let's read this together. Jesus expects me to be a believer that is Holy Spirit-empowered until he returns. This is my normal. I am Holy Spirit-empowered to live and to work in expectancy of his second coming. I'm not going to look backward, but to be Holy Spirit-empowered until he comes. Now we've had a practice. Now let's lift up our voice. All right, you ready? Come on, let's lift up our voice. Jesus expects me to be a believer that is Holy Spirit empowered until he returns. This is my normal. I am Holy Spirit empowered to live and work in expectancy of his second coming. I am not look to look backward, but to be Holy Spirit empowered until he returns. How many say that's me? That's what I need. Come, Holy Spirit. All over this room, 
Are there some folks saying, come Holy Spirit? How many will say with me and with those in the first service, I need him. I need him. I need your children and your children's children to need him. How many are believing God that, that God, one more time, pour out your spirit upon my family? I'm not giving up. I'm not turning back. I'm holding on. I'm believing God. All over this room, would you stand? If you would stand and just invite him one more time to come and envelop you. Come and empower you. Come and pour himself out over you. One more time. One more time. Invite him now. Say, come Holy Spirit, come. How many know you need them in your business? How many know you need them in your family? How many of you got some children, your grandchildren that are, that are far from God that need him? I'm telling you, friends, there's been times I've prayed for my kids. I didn't even know how to pray for them. But I prayed for them in the Spirit. And the Spirit of God would come and give me strength. And he would come with his miracle-working power and do supernatural things. Oh, come, Holy Spirit, one more time. And we'll not give up till Jesus comes. We'll not give up till Jesus comes.